Cassie Richardson-Brabs is coming up to preach. Cassie is our music director, and she will not want me to say all these lovely things about her, but she's really incredible. As you know, as you see her leading worship, like she's just got a really um, lovely faith, and I enjoy hearing her preach every time. So let's welcome her. That water is yours. Okay, perfect. So when my kids were younger, I heard a phrase that we quickly adopted in our home out of necessity. The phrase was, we don't say you can't play. When a sibling or a friend wanted to join a group of other kids who were already playing with one another, it was never an option to tell that child that they couldn't play as well. Sometimes conversations needed to be had around playing kindly or setting expectations and parameters for the game so that someone wouldn't come in as a Lego-stomping, fire-breathing dragon and destroy the city that everyone worked so hard to build. <laughs> but I wanted to communicate the importance of everyone having an opportunity to be included if they desired that. But the very idea of needing to have a phrase that we used frequently in our home, I might add, to encourage my kids not to leave someone out always made me really concerned for our hearts as humans and where this notion of exclusion even comes from. Why is it so natural for us, starting from such a young age, to exclude other people? This is kind of our whole shtick as humans. We want to protect what we have and keep others on the outside. We've seen it in our own religious landscape even. There are moral codes and there are rules that should be followed. And when we notice that someone isn't following them, we kick them out of the club. Or we don't even let them in at all. Or at our worst, we scapegoat in order to restore peace, which is the ultimate exclusion. On the opposite side of that exclusion coin is our need to belong. We humans have an intrinsic desire to be accepted and supported by other people. And that motivates, our, motivates us to group ourselves with people with whom we share things in common. In fact, in Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs, belongingness is considered one of the biggest needs that motivates human behavior. There was a study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in 2017 that looked at 64 babies. They were right around a year and a half old. Researchers ran an experiment, and they had two groups of women. Those, each group wore a label to identify themselves as part of one group or another. And then the women acted out different social scenarios while the babies watched. The researchers reported that when a situation was acted out where one woman needed help, the babies had an expectation that women from that same group would help her. But there was no such expectation for women who were part of a different group than the woman who needed help. This suggests that before the age of two, we already have expectations about how people will act towards one another based on whether or not they are part of the same group. This might help to explain why a person may be quick to assist someone that they love, but not feel any pressing need to help someone that they see as an outsider, such as an immigrant or a refugee. The natural tendency to identify and associate with certain groups isn't necessarily a bad thing. This just tells us that we as humans quickly recognize differences in each other from a very young age. And again, this isn't a bad thing, but we can easily see how an us versus them mentality could be adopted if adults in a child's life don't work to model an open, inclusive posture towards all people. I grew up in a racially and socioeconomically very diverse facility, and I feel so grateful to have had the privilege of living alongside people who were different than I was, starting from a very young age. 
I was the only white girl in my group of close girlfriends in high school, which lent itself to some very eye-opening and mind-opening experiences. At the music store, while we were just a bunch of teenagers shopping for the new crisscross single tape, that gives you an idea of how old I am. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I witnessed my friends being cautiously watched and followed by the store clerk. I didn't get followed. We went to parties where I was the minority, and then we had conversations about how that was different than my friends' daily experiences of not having a choice about whether or not to be in a place where no one looked like them. And they might meet hostility or worse at any time. Or just a fun night at a typical weekend sleepover when I grabbed my girlfriend's brush to put my hair up on a ponytail and she laughed at me and told me I was welcome to try it, but that her brush was not gonna work for my hair texture. Oh, we talked very openly about race. We were friends because of our similarities. That's usually what draws people together initially, but we didn't shy away from talking about our differences. And those conversations were what deepened our connections to one another. So my upbringing was a crash course in inclusion and diversity. I made unintentional mistakes then, and I still do. As a white, straight, cisgendered person, I benefit from systems that oppress non-white, non-straight, gender queer people and perhaps even unintentionally contribute to those systems myself. So I'm most grateful for those friends who love me enough to be afraid of having the hard conversations and also to not get my feelings hurt when they had to correct me because I knew they loved me. From start to finish, Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is also a crash course in inclusion and diversity of bringing the outsider in. It teaches us humans to recognize and move away from our instinct to close ranks, which is an instinct that humans developed as a protective mechanism. The stories in the Bible instead paint a picture of reaching across cultural, racial, religious, and philosophical barriers in order to bring in and not push out. After all, heaven expands, it widens, and it envelops. I think that high level, we all get that theme, right? But just like with most things in practice, it's a little bit more difficult to pull off because we're resisting our very human instincts to close ranks with the people who look, think, speak, and act like we do. Look at social media as an example. We surround ourselves with people who see life through the lens that we see life through, and we end up in an echo chamber where we all validate each other's opinions and ideas and resist anything that looks or sounds like it might be contradictory to our own ideology. But the Bible teaches us to love our enemies and to take care of the widows and orphans and to welcome the outsider into our community. And the only way we can do that is to get outside of our echo chamber and get around people who aren't like us. So there are many stories in the Bible with this idea of inclusion running throughout, but I want to focus on this passage in John. In John chapter 10, verses 14 through 16, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. So I feel like this is the appropriate point in our time together this morning to let you all know that I follow a few sheep on Instagram. <laughs> and here's why. They're not only absolutely adorable, but they're full of personality, each one of them. 
Their owners will post little stories about them, and there's no one sheep who is like another sheep. Harriet likes to be a ham for the camera. Mariko loves to snuggle, and Poppy's a messy eater. It makes my day to see their fluffy little faces come up in my Instagram feed, and I've developed such an affection for these little guys and gals, and I've never even met these little fluffy sheep. So I can relate on a very small level to what Jesus is saying here. In the eyes of Jesus, sheep are not anonymous. Each one is individually known as if it, ha- if, as if it had its own Instagram account. And if we're those sheep, as he's saying, he's saying that he knows us just as deeply as he and God know each other. So then Jesus says that he has other sheep, not of this sheep pen. This might refer to Gentiles or may simply be a reference to other followers who aren't a part of that community. But Jesus thought it was important enough to be explicit here, that it isn't just about the people gathered around listening. It's about bringing the other into that community that they are a part of what God is doing and that their presence is essential. Remember, Jesus said, I must bring them also, must. Not, it's fine if they're included and it's fine if they're not. It's imperative that they're brought in. He addresses this directly because he knows that we are predisposed to gravitate towards people who are like us and flock with them. And he wants to make it clear that that's not the way it's gonna be, folks. What does this say about how we should behave towards people who we see as other, people who are fundamentally different than we are or that we see that way? What if we started viewing their presence in our lives as necessary instead of optional? How would that change the way that we interact with our neighbors or even people that we might disagree with? Because Jesus says that once they're brought in, there will be one flock. This is better translated as there will become one flock. Jesus is not saying that he's going to make all the sheep and turn them into one sheep. No, he knows them each individually and as intimately as he knows God. But he's bringing all of these sheep together with all of their little personalities and quirks and distinguishing marks, with all of their similarities and also with all of their differences. And they will together become one flock that is led by the shepherd. Jesus knows our need to belong. And he also knows our tendency to push people out. So he makes it clear that he is after unity, not uniformity. We will all be brought together as one flock, and we can all be different within that flock. Caroline here at church turned me on to writer and civil rights activist Audre Lorde, and I love this quote from her. It is not our differences that divide us. It's our inability to recognize, accept, and celebrate those differences it's okay to acknowledge that we aren't all the same. Not just broadly, but on an individual, person-to-person basis. If we pretend that we don't see color or gender or disability, then we're missing out on learning so much about the people in the periphery of our lives whose experience of life may be very different than ours. Not only that, but in order to fully know and be known, we have to first acknowledge that we aren't all the same. We are different. And just as I learned with my friends growing up, acknowledging that can create a really powerful bond. A misguided adage is the notion of colorblindness as it relates to skin color. There was a photo circulating online a few years ago of two little boys, one white and one black. The white boy asked his mom if she could cut his hair just like his black friend's hair. The boys were convinced that if they had the same hairstyle, their teacher wouldn't be able to tell them apart. And they thought it would be hilarious to play this joke on her. 
The commentary from the white mom is that we should all be just like these little boys who see themselves as so much alike that they don't notice the color of one another's skin. It's so cute that these little boys thought that with the same haircut they could fool their teacher. They obviously bonded over their similarities, right? But as adults, we ought to realize that the reason that this is so adorable is because the boys don't look the same. They have very obvious differences in their skin color, and that's nothing to skirt around or avoid. So let's not teach colorblindness. Let's not take that way. Let's not pretend not to see differences. When we do that, especially as white people, we completely invalidate a part of someone's identity and equate skin color as something negative. If we say we don't see someone's race, it's like saying, I see who you are despite the color of your skin, which has a very negative connotation. So what are some things that we can do as teachers, carers, parents, and relatives of little ones to ensure that they learn to bend towards inclusion? One way is to encourage children to ask questions when they notice something different. Kids are naturally curious, and they won't always be in close contact with people who look different than they do. So it's up to us as adults to give them the appropriate language to talk about the differences that they notice and to teach them that it's okay to do so. I recently saw an amazing example of this on the Scary Mommy blog. Does anyone follow that or hear of that? Lots of mom stories on there. So there was a photo of a woman whose right arm was missing, a really beautiful photo of this woman. And this is the story that she posted below. I'm going to quote the whole thing because there's a lot of good stuff in here and it would get lost in paraphrasing, so bear with me. This is the story that was posted below. Can you tell me the story of how you lost your arm, he said. Sure, I was in an accident when I was just 10 years old, I replied. Oh, okay, my mom says it never hurts to ask, and asking is better than staring. I bet when you started reading this, you would have never guessed this conversation was with a child. I was taken aback in a good way, too. So many times, children stare and make statements like, what happened to you, or what's wrong with your arm? And it's no fault to them, and mostly no fault to their parents, because they're kids. Kids are bold and unpredictable. It never causes me to be upset at them, but there's always a little sting when that what's wrong with your arm hits my ears and my heart. But yesterday, when this little boy, now a friend of mine, approached me in the way that he did, tell me the story, I immediately knew I should do two things. Number one, thank his mother for discussing these situations with her child and congratulate her on her success in actually getting a small human to consider her advice long enough to utilize it. <laughs> and number two, share this story with all of you. He had grace and compassion in his voice. He thought through what he was going to say before he said it. He approached the topic in a way that gave me a purpose instead of making me feel like an outcast. He listened to my answer and followed up with validation on why he was asking. Honestly, I got on here to share this story for the parents who, like me, wonder what's the best way to teach our kids how to act and approach those who are different. But now that I have all this typed out, this post is just as much for adults as it is for kids. We can all learn from this eight-year-old. Humans are still raising kind humans, she says. Isn't that awesome? I think it was very kind of this woman to post this story. Just what a phenomenal example of how okay it is to talk about our differences instead of pretending that they don't exist and to teach the kids in our lives to do the same. This is also so great because no two people are alike. And to make assumptions about an entire group of people based on one person's experience is incomplete and unfair. So asking someone about their life and points of view 
and preferences as an individual helps to broaden our kids' perspective in a truly diverse landscape of human experience instead of encouraging pigeonholing and stereotyping. Another way to encourage inclusion is to role-play scenarios where someone may feel left out. When kids are encouraged to problem-solve solutions, it strengthens the neural pathways in their brains so that they'll be more confidently able to think creatively in the future. So instead of telling children how a situation should be handled, we can try asking them what they would do in a similar situation or what they would do differently if it wasn't handled appropriately. This helps develop their young brains into creative, free-thinking brains, and over time, they will feel more comfortable and confident in decision-making, including as it relates to how to treat other people. I'm in no way a parenting expert, but I have done lots of this kind of role-playing with my own fire-breathing Lego-stomping dragons <laughs> when less-than-ideal choices are made, or when we hear about upsetting things that are happening in their world or the bigger world. We talk about what happened, how they would feel if it happened to them, because tapping into empathy is very important. And then we talk about what could be different, done differently next time. I don't give them the answers ever. I wait as long as it takes for them to figure it out. It's always pretty amazing to see what creative solutions they come up with on their own. And finally, I would suggest modeling the behavior that you want the children in your life to emulate, including them when, whenever possible and discussing it with them. We can talk at them all day long, right, about doing the right thing, but it helps tremendously for them to see the right thing happening all around them in their world. Speak positively about the people in your life. Look for opportunities to include people who may be overlooked or even actively left out. Stand with those who are on the outside looking in and let your kids see you doing that and bring them in to participate whenever possible. I just happened to have an opportunity today for you to model support. Our friend and congregant, Kristen Carthage, has a cousin whose daughter is a senior at Calvin Christian High School in Grand Rapids. And this cousin's daughter recently came out as gay in her school. The school counselor, his name is Matt, he publicly supported her and he was subsequently forced to resign. Ken asked if we could all sign a card for Matt, who is still jobless, thanking him for being willing to stand with the outcast and thus becoming an outcast himself. So Kristen brought a card and it's back on the welcome table. So after church, if you all want to stop by and sign your name and just write a little message of support for Matt, I'm sure that he would really appreciate that. I'd like to end with a quote from an article written by Bradley Artson. He's the Dean of Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies and he's also the Vice President at American Jewish University. He said, the Bible starts with profound stories. The first story we are given is of a God who cannot bear to be alone. A God who is driven by love to create a world of flowering and cascading diversity in which nothing is precisely like what came before it. In which each new creature is delightfully fresh and novel. In which God, thrilled by each new creation, says, this is good. And then God creates a creature with the capacity also to look at diversity and to look at novelty and to say, this is good. And we're told in this story that we are made in that God's image. What is the characteristic of the God of Genesis? Unearned love that can only be made real when it is given away. And so without obligation, God creates a diverse and flowering universe because God cannot be God if God cannot love. We are, my friends, in God's image. 
And we also, though, shrivel up and die if we do not have the ability to pour out our love, to celebrate difference, to rejoice in novelty, to see in each other divine sparks, and to be delighted and thrilled by what we see. That is, says the Bible, our most godlike attribute, end quote. We love and serve and we're created by a God who also says, we don't say you can't play. In fact, we actually need each other and we need the diversity that God created us with. Imagine what that depth of knowledge would do for the kids in our lives, knowing that they belong to a God who loves them exactly as they are and to a community who does too. Let's teach our children to see in each other those divine sparks by recognizing them in one another. We're going to go ahead and just take a couple, three minutes for some silent meditation. Now, sometimes we do a guided meditation, but I think today we're just, let's just leave some space open. You can take some deep breaths, imagine God however you imagine God to be, maybe just sitting next to you and make space for talking about anything that is going on in your own life that maybe you would like to just present to, um, present to a God who is love. So I know people and babies make noise and that's okay, but let's just take a couple of minutes here to listen for God. Jesus, we thank you for your presence with us, and we ask that you be with us through the week. Amen. So I'd like to.